Good morning, everyone. Last week, um, in his sermon, Craig spoke to us about righteous anger, particularly uh, talking about God's righteous anger. God's righteous anger is a response to sin. Now, today we're going to be sort of looking at the flip side of that, the idea of sinful anger. What is it that causes us to be angry? Why is anger such a common problem um, in our lives? So how can we put off this sort of anger and instead be peaceful, gentle and more loving? Now, Craig already touched on that a little bit in sort of in contrast to the idea of righteous anger. He talked a little bit about how do we distinguish between what's righteous anger and what's sinful anger. He talked about these two questions that we can sort of ask ourselves to try and distinguish the difference, whether we're being, our anger is righteous or perhaps whether it's sinful. Firstly, the question was, well, is, the, is, our, is our anger motivated by a response to some genuine sin or injustice that we see, either to someone else or to, to us ourselves? Is it motivated by genuine sin? Or is it maybe motivated by some selfishness uh, that we might have ourselves? And the other question was, well, well, how do we deal with that anger? What do we do with the anger that we feel? Are we perhaps humble in, in the way that we deal with it and controlled and forgiving in the way that we deal with people and people's sin towards us, like God is? Or perhaps do we lash out in our anger in ways that are destructive and unhelpful? So that's a sort of a useful guide for us to help to try and distinguish between perhaps sinful anger and righteous anger. But this morning I want to sort of dig a little bit deeper under the surface of this and think about what are some of the fundamental causes that drive anger that we feel, sinful anger that we feel. Because I think it's sort of lurking beneath the surface in all of us which is why it so easily sometimes bubbles to the surface. Um, sometimes at the slightest provocation we can be driven to anger. You know, when someone holds us up in the traffic, perhaps we might be in a rush to finish something and someone's interrupting us or trying to get our attention and we, so we lash out in anger. Or perhaps, you know, we're just trying to get the jar lid off and it just won't come off and we burn in anger, say something that we, don't, we might regret. Now, some of those things we might just call, oh, that's just frustration. Well, are those things really sinful? And I guess in those situations we can ask ourselves those questions. Um, maybe it's, maybe, maybe not. But I think those sort of simple incidents demonstrate just how prone we all can be to getting angry, even at the slightest provocation. Just how fine that trigger can be between well, maintaining our, our, our self-control or lashing out in some kind of anger. And, you know, I have to put my hand up. I can, I can do a pretty good job at putting on the facade of the mild-mannered, easy-going um, kind of guy. But, you know, if I'm in a hurry and there's someone in front of me on the road doing 10Ks below the speed limit, well... I'm ashamed at some of the things that I might have said and done. And, you know, we can, we can sort of rationalise it away and say, well, 
haven't really hurt anyone. He couldn't hear what I said. So who have I really hurt? But really, that misses the point because what about what that sort of behaviour, what that sort of thinking does to me? What does it say about me when I engage in that kind of thing? I think it sort of can become that sort of cancer that starts to eat away inside of us, slowly destroying any sense of love and compassion that we might have towards other people. So, you know, next time someone tests me through something that they might say or do, it just makes it a little more likely that I'm going to lash out again in that situation. And I think that's what sinful anger can do to us. It just sort of slowly builds up in us, eats away at us, eats away at those sort of love and compassion that we might have, that we should have towards our fellow human beings um, and just makes us more prone to lash out in anger. And so I think that's why it's something that we really need to learn to deal with. So let's think about what causes this sort of anger within us. Now I want to start with a reading from the book of Ecclesiastes. And in this reading we see Solomon, you know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's, he's looking at the world around him. He sees all the injustice, he sees all the suffering, he sees all the futility of people's labour in the world. And he's trying to understand it all. And this is what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children there's nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb and as everyone comes so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction and anger. Here we see Solomon describes this, what we might call an existential crisis, which is something that we're probably all familiar with to a certain degree. You know, what's the point of our lives? We're born with nothing, we work hard all our days, and then we leave with nothing. What is the point? Um, even if we manage to hoard some sort of wealth in this life, well, even that can cause us harm. Or maybe we just lose it through some misfortune. Either way, it doesn't really matter. What's the point? We end up with nothing at the end. What's the point? Of course, what Solomon's saying here is coming from the perspective sees only this world, only the things in this world. It's a worldview that doesn't recognise God. Um, and so in this view, when he's looking at the world without God here, he's left to try and find some sort of meaning, some sort of significance in what he sees around him without God, something to hold on to um, in this world, something to satisfy him, to bring him satisfaction in this world. He's looking for something in his work and his labour that's satisfying and something that's lasting, something that has significance. He's looking for something that will validate him as a person, give him some dignity and standing and meaning in his life. 
but there's nothing there. Without God, there's nothing there. It's just left to him alone in the world, left to make his own way. But notice what Solomon says is the result of this crisis, of this way of thinking. He says it all brings great frustration, affliction and anger. And if we think about it, we shouldn't be really surprised about this result because, after all, what he's talking about here is these deep desires within each and every one of us that without God aren't being met. He looks at the world around him and he looks at his own life and without God he recognises that there's something wrong, there's something missing, but he can't quite find a solution. He keeps hitting on dead ends. All of these things he tries, they're just dead ends. Of course he's going to be left frustrated and angry because it all ends in nothing. And so we see here that Solomon recognises that when we ignore God, when we leave him out of the picture, when we reject God, when we try and do everything when we, and go it alone, one of the consequences is going to be this lingering sense of frustration and anger because we can't do it on our own. We're not sufficient on our own. Those basic needs, those basic drives we have of significance, of meaning, of security, they're not being met on our own. And so it results in this frustration and anger. Now Solomon doesn't really elaborate here on exactly what this, the outcome is of all this anger and frustration that we might feel. But certainly there's that sense of affliction and suffering that comes along with this anger and frustration. And it shows us that kind of inner turmoil that it creates. And all that kind of inner turmoil and suffering has to come out somehow, isn't it? And so that's going to come out in our frustration and our anger. The prophet Isaiah had something similar to say and he goes even further than Solomon I think. And we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 8 and here he's talking to the people of Judah and he's warning them about the impending doom that will face them if they refuse to change their ways. They're suffering all sorts of threats from nations around them, uncertainty um, and wondering what they, what's going to happen, what they should do. And so Isaiah is telling them, speaking to them and challenging them about the attitude they have to these dangers that surround them. And he says in verse 19, When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this world, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upwards will curse their king and their God. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. It's a pretty grim picture that Isaiah paints there. He talks about these people. They're they're obviously desperate for answers in the uncertainty of the times that they were living in. They were desperate for some sort of guidance, some sort of answers. They want to understand what's happening to them um, and find security amid the threats. They're even so desperate they'll look anywhere for guidance, even to these babbling mediums and spiritists 
who might give them some kind of answer. But of course, going there doesn't help them. It doesn't really give them any meaningful answers. It doesn't help them. And so it doesn't, they're just left wandering, aimless and distressed, because they can't find the answers that they seek. They're still seeking these answers, but they're frustrated because they're finding none. So they get angry at their king. They get angry at their God. They get angry at anything that they can find um, because they can't find the answers that they seek. Even, of course, if they'd listened to what God was telling them, they would find the answers that they seek. But for some reason, they're refusing to listen to God. They cut him off. Instead, they curse him. Um, I guess they didn't like the answers that they knew he would give them. But their result is this anger. And once again, we see the result of this, um, this, this anger. We see how this anger afflicts their lives. Because of this, Isaiah says, they're blinded. Rather than looking to God and finding wisdom and hope, all they see is distress and despair. It just fuels this cycle where they keep looking for answers, they keep looking for security, but they're chasing dead ends constantly, banging against, up against brick walls. And so this need that they have for security and answers is never satisfied. And it just, again, creates this turmoil within them because their desires, their needs are never satisfied. I guess that looks a lot like the world today, doesn't it? The world that's rejected God, that's still desperate for these answers, desperate for this peace, desperate for meaning. Um, But they can't find these things that they seek because they have rejected God. But lest we say that, oh, that's the problem that affects other people, I think this still charts the path that each of us tread uh, today, even us as Christians as we try and live our lives in this world. Um, all too often, we too, even though we're, we, we claim to be Christians, it can be hard to break out of those old ways of thinking. It can be hard to break out of the ways of thinking that where we're trying to do all these things on our own, find these answers ourselves. And so we end up just finding the same frustration, the same anger that's caused uh, that, that, that Isaiah is talking about. When we try and live our lives apart from God, the result is going to be this frustration and this anger. So both these passages talk about this frustration and anger that's caused by, in, in a sense, living our lives as sinful creatures in this world that's tainted by sin. We're frustrated by the injustice and the futility we see around us. We're frustrated because of our own limitations, because we know that and feel that we're meant for more than what we see around us, that we're owed more, but we find ourselves thwarted and frustrated at every turn. And these are understandable responses in some way to what we see around us, but if we leave God out of the picture, if we refuse to humble ourselves and trust him, then those frustrations are going to remain unresolved and they're going to turn into anger, anger that's directed towards God and anger that's unleashed on those around us. And so we have all these frustrations that will bubble underneath the surface 
and it doesn't take much to then trigger them and bring it to the surface and for us to lash out. Perhaps you're unconvinced by what I'm saying. Perhaps you know this might seem a bit removed. You think, oh, we're not angry at God. But I think this is the same sort of thing that even James warned about. As we read in James chapter 3, James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Just, just to interrupt there, you could sort of t- compare this unspiritual wisdom that he's talking about here to the sort of seeking after the spiritists and mediums that Isaiah was talking about. Or it could be any kind of earthly wisdom that we place, we place above God's word and God's wisdom. In both cases, the result is this frustration because, again, it's failing to fulfil that need. And the result of that frustration, James says, is chaos and evil. But as James continues, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So James tells us that it's these unfulfilled desires within us, battling within us, desires ruled by worldly thinking, worldly wisdom, ungodly wisdom. It's these things that come from turning our back on God that erupt out of us, causing fights and quarrels among us. We want, he says, but we don't have. And why do we not have? Because we don't ask God. We don't come to God. Because we're living by worldly wisdom instead of godly wisdom. And we're trying to fulfil ourselves according to the standards of this world. And so we're frustrated within ourselves. We don't have what we want. And we turn that frustration outwards and fight and take and kill Anything to try and get what it is that we seek. But notice what James contrasts this with. His antidote, if you will. His first wisdom that comes from God. Looking to God for our guidance. Looking to God for our security and our meaning and our peace. This wisdom from God, he says then brings humility. As we recognise who we are, we recognise our own limitations, our own failings, 
and stop chasing vainly after all of these things in the world to try and build us up or puff us up or satisfy ourselves. And this results, James says, in a good life, bearing good fruit. And look how it's described, this fruit. Things like considerate, merciful, impartial, peace-loving. Think about those qualities. They're incompatible with anger. They're the opposite of anger. We can't have those qualities if we're angry. Whenever we give in to anger, we're quenching those sort of qualities within us. We're denying the opportunity for those qualities to grow within us. As James said earlier in his letter, in James chapter 1, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Why? Because anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. When we respond in anger like this, we're giving up the opportunity for God to work within us. God has no chance to develop righteousness within us if we respond in anger. We build a wall between us and God. We build a wall between us and our fellow humans because we're still trying to live life on our terms, for ourselves. So what's James's response? Slow down. Take a step back. Listen and learn. And through that, grow in righteousness. But it means taking that opportunity to, rather than lash out, rather than getting angry, take that step back, slow down, and uh, have that chance to think about what's going on within us and have that opportunity to grow. So for James, as I think with Isaiah, as I think with Solomon, it begins with our decision to submit ourselves to God. So I hope I've made this point clearly because I think it's important that we understand these root causes of anger and sinful anger within us. Because if we try and deal with our outbursts of anger without addressing the underlying insecurities, the underlying unmet desires that we have, we'll never really get anywhere because we're not dealing with the underlying cause. Um, And that's just going to add to our frustration because we're going to try and deal with our anger but it's not going to work because we're not addressing the root cause. Now, perhaps this is a bit abstract, so let's look at one quick example uh, from the book of Genesis. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. 
Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So what is it that is driving Cain's anger here? Well, obviously he wants to be accepted by God. He wants God's approval. He wants God to look upon him favourably, which it's a reasonable desire, isn't it? We all share that desire, don't we? But we see Abel's offering is rejected and he takes it personally. It's like the fruit of his labour, everything he's worked for, these vegetables. God's not happy with it for some reason. It's wounded his pride. And so this desire that Cain has for God's acceptance is frustrated, it's unfulfilled. And so he gets angry. But when he gets angry, God even challenges him about it and sort of says to him, what right do you have to be angry about this? There's no point. What, you know what to do, he says. If you want to be accepted, do what is right. It's simple. If you want to be satisfied, turn to God. Do what God says. But... God warns him, if you don't, if you don't turn to God, if you don't do what is right, you're opening the door to sin. You're choosing to walk down a dangerous path, a futile path that ends nowhere and sin will end up controlling you instead. But sadly, despite this direct challenge from God, Cain doesn't listen, he doesn't submit to God. He doesn't choose to do what is right. He still feels like he has to be the master of his own destiny and live life on his own terms. And so he gives in to this anger and lashes out and kills his brother. He chooses to get rid of what he perceives to be the problem, which is Abel and his, his, his situation. He chooses to get rid of that rather than deal with the real issue which is himself and his own, um, his own willingness to, or lack of willingness to do what God has said. And so when we get angry, God could be asking us the same question. Why are you angry? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If we do what is right... If we put our trust in God, will our needs not be met? Why do we keep chasing down all these these, um, fruitless paths? Why do we keep chasing these things that we know won't fulfil us? If we do what is right, will we not be accepted? So many of our frustrations are caused by these desires that remain unfulfilled, because like Cain, we're looking for it in the wrong place. 
So sinful anger is something that I think we all struggle with to one degree or another. Because in many, fa- in many ways it's caused by the frustrations that we all feel as human beings, as part of our sinful and limited condition in this world. But rather than dealing with it properly, rather than humbling ourselves and looking to God for his direction and his security and being satisfied with everything that he gives us, instead we lash out in anger like Cain or we cause fights and quarrels and divisions like James was talking about, all in some sort of desperate way to try and get what it is that we seek. So the point I've tried to make this morning is perhaps to focus a bit less on when anger that we might have becomes sin. Let's focus less on, well, where is that line between sinful anger and righteous anger? How far can I go before it becomes sinful? Perhaps focus a bit less on that and focus more on when sin becomes anger. Because I think that shows us why Jesus, in his anger, never sinned. Because Jesus, when Jesus got angry, it came from a place of righteousness because of his love and trust in God. It was never, didn't come from a sinful rejection of God or any kind of reliance on himself. It came from that place of righteousness. Paul spoke about his ability to be content or learning to be content in all circumstances in Philippians chapter 4. I think so much of our anger is caused not by righteous indignation, even though we might often try and couch it in those terms to try and make ourselves justified. It's not caused by righteous indignation or a passion for justice to see wrongs righted. Often it comes from our own discontentment, our own dissatisfaction. It comes from when we're focused on ourselves. So if we can learn to humble ourselves, to put our trust in God, if we can then try and put off this mindset that spurs sinful anger within us. So I think when we find ourselves getting angry, a good question to ask is, what does this tell me about where I'm lacking in my trust in God? And if we take that time to slow down, as James says, Think about this question. It gives us an opportunity to listen and learn to what God might be trying to teach us. So the next time I'm held up in traffic by someone doing 10Ks below the limit in front of me, perhaps the reason I get so angry is because I still think that everything I have is a result of my own effort. I think that I'm somehow special because of that, because of all of my own effort and that I'm still owed something. The world owes me something because of everything that I do. And so because of that, any obstacle I face, no matter how minor, it becomes this great injustice that I blow out of all proportion. When I think that way, it's showing me that I have something to work on in order to draw closer to God. The problem isn't the person in front of me, the problem is in, within myself. Of course, having that perspective is easier said than done, especially in the moment. You know, 
it's not my problem. It's, if he can just do 10Ks faster, do the speed limit, no problem. It's so simple. It's not my problem. But like I said at the beginning, when I think that way, what does it say about me? What does it say about me that I'm so sensitive to the failings of other people? Not even the sins of other people, just their errors, their foibles. What does it say about me that I'm so sensitive to those kinds of things? That's not the kind of life that we've been called upon to live by Jesus. As James said, we're called upon to be humble, compassionate, forgiving. And that's not what I'm like in the car when in those situations. But whenever we lack those qualities, we're going to be prone to this kind of anger, a sinful and self-centred anger. So I hope that's an encouragement to us all to stop relying on ourselves to do, to, for our own sense of uh, and self-importance, to live a life of peace. So hopefully that's been an encouragement to all of us.